This morning, we're going to wrap up our series in 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. So if you'd follow along in your Bibles, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. And then next Sunday, we're going to pick back up in Genesis, which is going to take us all the way up to Advent. Listen along as I read the end of 1 Peter here, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Please pray with me. Father, would you speak to us today? Would you polish the name of Jesus, lift him up, and help us all, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, to believe on him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, Peter ends this letter with a list of commands and encouragements. And the final command is to stand firm. If you think about it, that's kind of a hard command to obey. Standing is static. We're like, what do we actually do, Peter? Well, how do we live out this standing firm? Simply standing up, if you're healthy or young, Uh, is pretty commonplace. But there are certain circumstances in which standing up, simply standing, is a victory. On vacation, I read a book called Unbroken, uh, written by Laura Hildebrand. She wrote Seabiscuit. Um, And she writes about Louis Zamperini. He's a World War II veteran. He's passed now. And he was a prisoner of war. And the, the particular thing about Louis was he was a gifted runner. And in high school, before being enlisted into the Air Force and being sent to war, he broke the mile record as a high schooler. And he was destined for Olympic glory. So in those healthy days, Louis, when he's like 150 pounds soaking wet and crushing records in stadiums, if Louis stood up before the race, people wouldn't be standing up and cheering him. But a few years later, when Louis was a prisoner of war in Japan, in one of the worst prison camps there, he stood up, and it was truly awesome. You see, Louis, he was the target of one of the most brutal, violent Japanese guards. They nicknamed him the Bird. Um, he, was, he was charged with many war crimes after the war was over. But the Bird had it out for Louis, and he beat him almost daily with a huge brass belt buckle, kicking him, punching him, and all sorts of cruel and unusual punishment. 
And one day when Louis was physically and mentally half the man, half the man he was, uh, one day the bird made him pick up a beam, a wooden beam about six feet long and hold it over his head. And he told Louis, the bird told Louis, if you drop that, I'm, I'm stationing a guard by you and he's going to beat you senseless. And so Louis is standing there. He's probably lost 50 pounds. He's shaking, malnourished, and he's holding this up here. And the bird is laughing at him, mocking him, just waiting for the second that he drops it so that he could watch him beaten up. The bird stopped laughing because Louis held it and held it and held it. And one of Louis's prison mates calculated that Louis held that beam over his head for 37 minutes. Louis drew on some inner strength, and he stood, and it was truly awesome. It's easy to stand when there's no weight on you. It's hard to stand when you're suffering. And this is the final message of the Apostle Peter to us Christians. He says, stand with hope as you suffer for Jesus. Stand with hope as you suffer for Jesus. He's going to teach us how to stand with hope, first by humbling ourselves, then by resisting the devil, then by hoping in God. And finally, he's going to tell us straight out, stand in grace. So if you look at verses 6 and 7, he calls Christians to humble themselves. Uh, I'm a bit of a newer hiker. I haven't done backpacking where you go several days at a time. But I've heard some people further along than I am, even in this room, that one key to backpacking is to lighten your gear, to, to make sure that you don't have too much weight on your back so that you could last the whole trip. And so Peter here is calling us to offload, to, to give our cares to God, give him all of these unnecessary burdens. And that starts with humility. Look at verse six. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, Christians are called to humble themselves under God's hand. It's easy enough to agree with uh, that humility is a Christian virtue. But what does it actually look like? This is where Peter applies this. He says, we humble ourselves, and then verse 7, by casting our cares on God because he cares for you. So anxiety can be a form of pride. Now, anxiety is complex. There's spiritual components. There's bodily components. So I'm not saying all form of, forms of anxiety are pride. But here we see that anxiety can be pride. And here's how. When we're anxious, we seek to control our lives. We rehearse ways in our head how to get things that are scary under our control. And when we can't control everything around us, we're crippled by fear. That's pride. But true humility looks like looking to God, who is in control of all things. Humility says God is in control, and I don't need to seek control about the future. And the particular cares or anxieties Peter has in mind here are cares of exiles, the cares that we carry around as maybe social rejects as Christians. These are kind of what the anxieties sound like that maybe Peter had in mind for these early Christians. What do my classmates think of me because they know I'm a Christian? That's a care. 
Another one is, I hope I don't lose my job because I don't go along with something that goes against my conscience. Another care could be from spiritual attack. Maybe you're stuck in depression and anxiety and you feel like there's forces behind that. These are exile cares, cares that we carry as pilgrims. And some of you, some of us, carry far too many anxieties. You're like a ship that is weighed down with cargo. But the good news of this section is that God's children have a place to go with those cares. We can give our cares to God because he cares for us. If that's you this morning and you feel just weighed down, crippled by fear, hear this. God is calling you to lighten your load. He's saying, cast the cargo of your cares into the ocean of my love. God cares for you. So it's easy enough to talk about it, but what does that actually look like? And here are some basic steps you can take to take your real anxieties and give them to God. We could pull that slide up here. First, name your care. And it's best to say this out loud in prayer or write it down in your journal. If you're consumed with anxiety, what happens is they start to build up in your mind and you just get all these anxieties in your head. But to verbalize it, you see what you're actually fearful of, what's actually burdening you. Then write out or say out loud, name God's care for you. Whether it's finding a verse that speaks to that anxiety or just a verse like 1 Peter, verse 7, saying he cares for you. And finally, cast your care on God. You don't have to use these exact words, but say something like, God, I give this care, fill in the blank, to you because you care for me. Now, this probably isn't going to be like a magic bullet for your anxiety. God may take away your anxiety right away. He definitely could do that. But as you do this over and over again, as you cast your cares on God, I think you'll start to feel more rested, more, more trusting in God, and you'll walk more humbly with him. So when we humble ourselves under God's care, we're getting rid of this excess weight. And we start to clear our heads. Like I said earlier, anxieties have a way of clouding our thinking. We get fixated on the future and not on the present. But we need to get clear heads because we have a fierce enemy. If you look at verse 8 and 9, he starts with the mind. He says, be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone he can devour. So we humble ourselves, then we resist the devil as we seek to stand. There's three commands in this short section. Be sober-minded, be alert, and resist the devil. I think this is what Peter's saying. We're supposed to be alert in the present so that we can resist the devil who seeks to devour us, seeks to destroy us. And in particular, Satan, our spiritual enemy, he seeks to destroy our faith. Sure, he would love to harm your body, like we've seen him attack Job in the book of Job. But he's, he has a bullseye on your faith. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus tells Peter, he says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And then this is what Jesus says. This is nuts. Look out, Peter. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He said, Peter, after you deny me, Satan's coming after you like a lion, and he wants to devour your faith, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. 
So your faith is the devil's main target. He seeks to destroy it in one of two ways, quietly or boldly. I don't see too many kids in this room, but if there were, I would have asked them, in the Bible, what, is the, what animal is the devil compared to? So here we have a lion, and then if you're familiar with the Bible, he's also compared to a snake. So he's a snake and a lion. And two of the devil's main strategies are either to lull you into unbelief, like a snake, or to scare you into unbelief, like a lion. For most of us in America, it seems that the devil is quietly, craftily drawing our hearts away from Jesus through riches, through cares, and through ease and lust. Yet there are times, especially in times of persecution, when the devil becomes more like a lion, and he uses the assaults of others, whether verbal or physical, to, to scare the faith out of you. Well, there's many in missionary contexts across the world uh, who have seen the devil play the part of a lion. Uh, I, have, I have some missionaries in my family, and, and my sister and brother-in-law and their family were missionaries for a time in the Solomon Islands. And I remember getting their prayer request letters and often they would ask for help in spiritual warfare. Often they would bring up that text Ben brought up, Ephesians 6. Even the children were clued into this, that they saw people who are demon-possessed, they saw outbursts of anger that people generally peaceful. They saw these spiritual manifestations. But when missionaries in these contexts come back to the States, usually they have kind of like a spiritual culture shock. When they come back to America, they are shocked by kind of our spiritual delusion, shocked that people deny the devil's existence. Um, for example, my family, they, they did battle with the enemy in the name of Jesus. It's weird for them to come back when people don't even talk about the devil or act like he's real. And we as Americans are in a scary place of danger. He is real. Jesus spoke of the devil. He's our spiritual enemy, a fallen being who seeks to destroy us. And the most dangerous enemy is the one we, we deny or we don't know they're there. And so how do we resist this lion or the snake? Uh, before we get to that question, there's something interesting in this section. Um, this is the only mention of the devil in the whole entire letter of 1 Peter. Why would Peter bring up the devil right at the end? In preaching classes I've been in, they've always said, don't bring in new material at the end. So I've broken that rule, and Peter's bro broken that rule here, and he brings in the devil. Why is he bringing up the devil at the end of this letter? One reason I think Peter is bringing up the devil is that we need constant reminders that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is especially important for people who are cultural or societal outcasts, like Christians are becoming more and more. Because when you're pushed out by a majority of people culturally, you're tempted to push back and to demonize people, right? When you see Christians, maybe today on, on media, who are predominantly marked by anger, people who say I'm a Christian and they're just angry because they're losing their hold on culture, they are forgetting who the real enemy is, the devil. The Bible doesn't permit us to demonize 
people. In fact, remember earlier in Peter, Peter says, honor everyone. That includes your persecutors. That includes the emperor, your rulers. And so we're not allowed to demonize people made in God's image. And that's not to say there are times when people act the part of the devil who steals, kills, and destroys. We could all think of dictators in history who are long gone or even dictators alive today who act the part of the devil, but at bottom, they are still made in the image of God and they are worthy of honor. Our real fight is not against people, but it's against the devil and his demons. He opposes the church, he opposes Christ and our faith. And so how do we fight him? How do we battle back? First, remember that Jesus is the chief shepherd. Last week, Andrew preached about that, that we in the church are like sheep, and Jesus is the head shepherd watching over us. That's why it's important for us to stay close to Jesus in humility. Pride makes us wander away from Jesus, feel self-sufficient, and we step out into danger. Humility keeps us near the chief shepherd, casting our burdens on him. Like Psalm 23 says, his rod comforts us. And so how do we resist the devil? We remember that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And then Peter gives us one way to resist him. He says, we resist the devil by knowing the suffering of other Christians worldwide. He says that in verse 9. He's saying, you're not alone in your suffering. In fact, many other Christians today on the globe suffer way more than we do as American Christians. Many who have come to faith in the Middle East or China or India have lost family. They've been threatened. They've lost jobs. They've been imprisoned. Even some have been killed. And their collective testimony as a suffering global church is nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, not even death. And so we're strengthened as we see other Christians suffer who went behind us and who are around us. And we're strengthened with the thought that we too can make it through. So plumb church history, stories of courage today, globally, even suffering here in this local church, they could all serve to strengthen your faith. And when we strengthen our faith, that's how we resist the devil, because that's what he's after. So Peter, he's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering, and he says, your whole life is going to be a struggle. You're going to have to constantly humble yourself, and you're going to have to resist the devil. And this is a grind. This is hard work. And what is it that's going to keep us going until Jesus returns? That's where he turns next in his doxology, these few verses of praise. He says, hope in God. Peter ends the body of his letter where he began. Hope for exiles. He says in chapter one, you are born again to a living hope. And now he points them to eternal glory. He says, the God of all grace, verse 10, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace called you to his eternal glory. This is the gospel that we believe, that our God is rich in grace. 
He is rich in gifts that he freely gives to his people through Jesus Christ. And we didn't earn any of these gifts. Jesus paid for them on the cross, and he offers them to us freely in his resurrection. As you go through the book of 1 Peter, what are these graces? He's the God of all grace. What are these graces? Chapter 1, verse 3, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Also in verse 3, it's the new birth. Chapter 1, verse 4, it's the gift of heaven. 1, verse 5, the gift of protection, the gift of the scriptures and the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 10, it's the gift of his people. You guys right here. Chapter 3, verse 18, it's the gift of stepping into God's presence. He's your loving father. 4.11, it's the gift to serve in his strength. As the music team leads us in song and Ben prays and I preach and we go to the Lord's table, it's the gift of his strength in that moment. And finally, it's the gift of eternal glory. God is the God of all grace. And I just want to invite you, friends, who, who haven't followed Jesus, who haven't experienced these gifts from the Father, Peter is fundamentally preaching a gospel of hope. Not false hope, but genuine hope in a God who will restore all things and he will restore you if you place your faith in him. How could Peter, this fisherman in Galilee, have rock-solid hope that God had called him to eternal life, called him to forgiveness, called him to, to life with Jesus forever? It's because of the resurrection. Peter was devastated when Jesus died. All of his hopes died with that man. And he went back to fishing in Galilee, probably with his head down. He probably felt sad or, or felt like he was suckered. His promises didn't come true. But then on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and he called him to the beach and he showed him his wounds. And he said, all that I promise is gonna come true. That's where Peter's rock solid confidence comes from. So if you're not looking to Jesus for hope beyond the grave, hope beyond politicians, hope beyond money, come to Jesus today and he will give you, he will call you into eternal glory. This doxology crescendos when he says, God himself, when you've suffered for a little bit, he will restore you establish you, strengthen you, support. Peter's just going off here. He's like, God is going to do so much after you suffer and die and resurrect to be with Jesus. All these verbs of restore and strengthen, they kind of overlap. And he's basically saying, God's going to make all things right. He's going to take away all your doubts. He's going to take away all your sickness. He's going to take away all your sorrow. And he's going to strengthen you in his presence with his love. And he's saying this to weak suffering Christians who may sometimes look like the scum of the earth, people who are forgotten and rejected. He's saying, you will be restored, established, healed. And he closes out the body of this letter saying, dominion belongs to God forever. Peter has guts here. He's speaking in a time when Rome's empire was massive under the Pax Romana saying, you tribes don't fight at all. Rome is like the mega nation. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Dominion doesn't belong to Caesar. He's nothing. Dominion belongs to God forever. And I don't know how you feel about the stability of our country, but if the Lord uh, tarries, America's not going to be what it is. 
It's not going to be a superpower one day. It's going to fall like every other empire. And whether you think America is stable or it's falling apart, our one confidence as Christian is, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and kingdom belo- the kingdom belongs to Jesus Christ forever and ever. And this is the heat, hope that keeps us standing. It's the summer vacation that gets the student through the finals. It's the wonderful weekend plans that gets a, a worker through a hard Friday. And in a far greater way, it's the hope of glory that gets us through our suffering. Peter closes the body of this letter on a note of hope. He said, humble yourself, resist the devil, hope in God. And finally, he says, stand firm in grace, verses 12 through 14. In this section, Peter is giving his reason for writing, and he extends warm greetings to other exiled Christians. If you look at verse 12, He says, I wrote to you through Silvanus, and I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he's calling us to stand firm in this gospel hope, and he's writing as a spiritual exile himself. Kind of figuratively, he's saying, I'm sending greetings from Babylon. He's likely in Rome. But remember, in Israel's history, Babylon is the nation where they went to be exiled. So he's saying, as a fellow sufferer, as a fellow exile, Stand firm in this grace. And how are we to stand firm in grace? We've talked about a few ways. He ends with this final one. He says, we stand firm in grace by loving each other. He closes the letter by saying, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He commands the saints to give each other a kiss of love. Now, before you get up from your seat and spend the next 15 seconds greeting one another in that way or screeching your tires away from the church, um, just hear this. I remember my dad, he was a pastor uh, for international students in Boston for years. And we had people from all different nations over our house um, for dinner frequently. And one time we had a Middle Eastern family. I was like a family of four or five. And I reached out my hand. I was like a little kid. And before I knew it, like the dad and then the mom and the sister, they're all like, give me the cheek, cheek thing. And I was like, whoa, what is going on? So that is how some cultures even today greet one another. Maybe some of you come from a background that you greet each other by kissing each other on the cheek. Um, But what, what Peter is saying to us is practice warm greetings in a culturally appropriate way. So when you come in into the the worship gathering and you greet one another, whether it's a fist bump, I know one of you likes a fist bump, or a handshake or a hug or whatever it is in an appropriate way, uh, that's meaningful. When we stand up for 15 seconds to greet one another, that's meaningful. And as we walk as spiritual exiles, especially if more and more Christians are pushed out as outcasts in our, our country, which may happen, Um, those greetings become meaningful. When you come in from a work environment which is hostile to you, when you come in from a a school environment or a living environment where maybe you don't know other Christians and people don't get you, when you come into the Sunday gathering on Sundays and people are excited to see you, they give you a handshake or a hug because of your common love for Jesus, they're reminding you to stand firm in grace. All that Jesus said was true. Your family were headed towards eternal glory. 
So we stand in grace in part by gathering and simply greeting one another affectionately. Years after the war and after Louis Zamperini had married, he made a wreck of his life. Uh, he had dreams almost every single night of the bird, uh, this, this uh, guard, this abusive guard, who, who would beat him, and he dreamed of strangling him to death. Louis went to the bottle and became a drunk and started ruining his marriage. And he was driven by a hateful resilience. He started making plans to leave where he was in America, go to Japan, find the bird, and to strangle him. He was obsessed with this one passion. But by the grace of God, Louis became a Christian and traded his hateful resilience in for hopeful resilience. He no longer wanted to find the bird to destroy him. He wanted to find the bird to forgive him and share the love of Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. This is hopeful resilience that the suffering church is called to. Not to fight back when we're attacked. Not to get angry when we see our, uh, we're losing our grip on culture. But to forgive, to welcome, and to love as Christ has loved us. When we stand with this hope, we honor our enemies. We have strong resilience against Satan, our true enemy. So church, let's stand with hope as we suffer for Jesus.